This is Robert Clotworthy, the narrator of The Curse of Oak Island, and I have a question for you. Could it be that you are listening to The Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream? This is a top pocket find, mate, for sure. Hey, welcome everybody to The Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. I am your host, Jeff Freeman, and right over here, I have my returning as my special co-host tonight, John Edwards. John, how you doing tonight? Hey, great, Jeff. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. Hey, for the folks out there, you know, we've got a pretty good show lined up for you tonight. I can't wait to bring our guest on, which we'll do here in just a couple moments. Uh, but before we do, some of you may not know exactly who or uh, John Edwards is. And uh, so I'd like to give John an opportunity to kind of introduce himself to you all. And uh, he's become a a staple on the show here for us, and he's going to be working with me on some new ventures coming up and also some current ones that we're doing. But welcome to the show, John. Give us a little information hey. about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I'm a teacher by trade. I've been teaching for uh, 27 years in the in the uh, public school system, but um, my avocation is as a researcher and a theorist. Um, I do a lot of research. My focus is on uh, pedagogical or educational uses of symbols and icons during the age of exploration. Um, it fascinates me. Um, comparative religions, mythology, Templar history, and Christian and Jewish studies. So I kind of delve into all those kind of relationships in and amongst those ideas. Mm -hmm. And as you've heard me say, and my catchphrase is there is a line of thought. So you might hear me say that quite a bit tonight, but you know, so, so a lot of it's just fascinating to me and, and just looking at the not symbolism necessarily, but symbols and looking and comparing symbols amongst cultures and amongst different sites and things of that sort. So, you know, it's just fascinating. So they a are. little bit about me. Yep. And they are fascinating too. And no symbols, you know, we're going to talk about a little bit of those later on tonight with court um, because they are, they are, and they mean so much and they go so much deeper. You know, we had some other folks on, on beyond Oak Island. We had uh, Warren Gettler and uh, Holly Remkis that were working with symbols that had to do with the uh, uh, rebel gold uh, and wow. what was going on there, the Knights of the golden circle. So, I mean, those symbols are fascinating and they sometimes date back a lot of years, but we'll get into more of that as sure. we go along. Hey, for folks, well, for those of you that are out watching on our YouTube page, we appreciate it if you'd hit that subscribe button for us. And if you want to know about uh, interesting shows and things that we got coming up, click on that notification bell and you will be notified as soon as we have new content on the show. Um, what I would like to do right now is go ahead and bring on our special guest tonight. Uh, this gentleman uh, is a uh, author. He is a researcher for many, many years on many, many subjects. And he was also, I found out just recently, that he was also a work for many years as an archaeologist. Give it up for Court Lindahl. Welcome, Court. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you all? Mm -hmm. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It, it's an honor to have you come on here tonight. And uh, as we get started, Court, I would like to find out a little bit about Court Lindo. I know that I've, I've been talking to you for quite a while now, um, but many of our uh, guests, uh, our people, our viewers that are watching here tonight, we know that you were on Oak Island. You were on the show. And I think you had the number one theory, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Right. In the top 25 theory uh special that they did mine i was surprised as anyone else <laughs> that uh, they ranked mine number one because there's a lot of good theories out there that that um when they when that happened i was very surprised 
Yeah, and it was, I tell you what, and it's one that I'm really fascinated about. We're going to get into that in just a moment. But tell us a little bit about, you were an archaeologist. I know you've written several books. We know you've got a lot of YouTube videos out there uh, talking about some of your research. But tell us a little bit about this archaeology. When was that? Well, uh, beginning in about 1981, I became a field archaeologist. I wasn't really a professor or an academic archaeologist, mm -hmm. but I'd taken field schools in college and just started to do that as a vocation on contract archaeology. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me, like when they're building a highway or a gas line or something like that, uh, those areas would be checked out for cultural resources. Right. And uh, during that time, I worked for uh, the state of Virginia for a while, worked on some really interesting colonial sites where body armor was found and uh, other really? interesting early colonial artifacts in the area of Jamestown. And uh, that was a real thrill. And I didn't know how impressive that was when I was doing it because it was some <laughs> of the first things I had done. We worked on the Williamsburg gallows where Blackbeard's crew had been hung and things like that right so i just did it as a, a a job for many years and eventually moved out here to california and did it and just quit doing that about 10 years ago due to an injury i had on the job so oh wow uh, that's when i started writing ah okay yeah right? and uh, yeah. my first kind of thesis or thing that i was working on involved uh, why had thomas jefferson built octagonal structures Wow. And little did I know how that would feed in later to become a legitimate thing. I, I just kind of sensed that it might be important and started to look into that. And sure as heck here, even <laughs> later in my research, it's very applicable to uh, a lot of the things I found. Right. So that seems like that's kind of what got you interested into looking into this stuff. Is that right? Yeah. And doing some of the research. Yeah. Wow. Right. So I and looked you, into the history of yeah. all these kind of structures and things like that, right? And I yep. lived in Williamsburg. I went to high school See, in that area. So the powder magazine there, the octagonal structure in Williamsburg, was always a point of curiosity just in why did they do that. Exactly. And that was part of the reason I started to look into that later in association with Thomas Jefferson, who built Poplar Forest, which is kind of a copy of the Dome of the Rock, and Monticello, which is vaguely designed like the Daphne Palace of Constantine the Great, which also had a central octagonal room in it. Mm, yeah, so he was working on a tradition there in his architectural designs. And that's neat how you've been able to put all these things together and tie them together. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about those a little bit here too as we go along. And I've got some pictures that you've sent to me of of those very items. So as we go along here, I'll be showing those. Um, and it, this, let's take us uh, quickly, real quick, over to um, to Oak Island. Now, I know that uh, as you as we know, you were on the show and you talked about your theory there. And that theory, I guess, what it was called, lost and founding. Was that what it was? Yes, and it involves the founding fathers uh -huh. and American possible influence in the Oak Island story, which did kind of just blossom out into a lot of really uh, rational reasons that could be. As, mm -hmm. as the research went on. And uh, in the history of Nova Scotia, for instance, a lot of American colonists came up there and fought in the sieges of Lewisburg and other historical events up there. Um, the former governor of Virginia, Francis Nicholson, 
um, who helped to design the street plan of Williamsburg, um, was later the governor of Nova Scotia. And then we also had the colonial planters who were people from the American colonies that were given land in Nova Scotia. And this included famous American families like the Longfellow family of the famous poet, um, John Allen, who's distantly related to Edgar Allan Poe, and even the Delano family of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the, oh, wow. the American president. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these people maintained a loyalty uh, to the, the 13 colonies during the American Revolution. And at that time, many of them even came and fought for the colonies against the English during the American Revolution. And a lot of them even became members of the Society of the Cincinnati, which is a group of uh, American officers from the revolution that formed kind of the closest thing that the United States has to a knighthood after the war. Mm-hmm. So there were even some members up there, John Allen being one of them, who were uh, in the Society of the Cincinnati. And uh, even during the war, he had written letters uh, to President or George Washington asking him for assistance in invading Nova Scotia or funding a rebellion there as well. So there was an active movement starting at that time to make Nova Scotia part of what would become the United States. Right, right. And this sentiment kind of lasted well into the 1800s and the latter 1800s, leading to the, the um, appeal to heaven design and the that design being on the Evans Stone yes. there on Oak mm-hmm. Island. Mm-hmm. So it could have meaning towards that because there were movements even as late as the 1880s to try to make Nova Scotia part of the United States. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I was thinking too. And I know Judy uh, Rudabish uh, even mentioned on here that Benjamin Franklin also owned land on Nova Scotia, did he not? Yes, he did. He was given a, a 20,000 acre land grant there. I forget the name of the town, but there's a specific town in Nova Scotia that encompassed the area that that he uh, was awarded. So there's kind of a personal motivation for Ben Franklin even to want Nova Scotia to be part of the United States later as well. So uh, and really a lot of the kind of American connections go back as far as the Baron of Nova Scotia himself. Who was, go ahead, tell us. <laughs> right. Well, we know that he, him and his sons attempted to form a Scottish colony there under the auspices of first James I and Charles I and so on. That didn't really take hold or was successful, but they awarded all these baronetcies uh, to people along with land grants in Nova Scotia at that time. But what's interesting about the baron is that being he was so closely associated with Charles I, mm-hmm. after Charles I uh, was beheaded during that period, and then in between the time Charles II then became king again when they reestablished the monarchy just 15 years later or so, that um, a lot of the exiled cavaliers or supporter of Charles I came to the American colonies in exile. And this included pe- people like uh, Thomas Beale, who, who later is part of the Beale treasure story from that family. And he was also a Knight of Malta, which was kind of rare at that time. 
uh, for an Englishman to be a member of the Order of Malta. But it also included the most of the remaining family of the Baron of Nova Scotia, uh, specifically the descendants of his brother, who now had the rights to the titles of the Baron of Nova Scotia and the Earl of Stirling. So what's interesting about that is that William Alexander, another general in the American Revolution prior to the war, had attempted to claim the titles of Baron of Nova Scotia and Earl of Stirling. And uh, it's interesting because the Scottish peerage awarded him these titles, but kind of understandably in that era, the British Parliament turned it down because they, could, I think, could see the writing on the wall of the revolution coming and uh-huh. disputes with America. And this would have made it a lot easier for Nova Scotia to have become a state after the establishment of the United States. So that, that, that's an interesting aspect of that. Other parts of his family were the founders and namesakes of Alexandria, Virginia, right? which was within the original boundaries of Washington, D.C., and they had a lot of influence in the establishment of Washington, D.C. at that time, a little later. And even there's records of one of them, Stephen Alexander, being offered the Baron, being the Baron of Nova Scotia, that he turned down. So there's a lot of interesting connections that, that do relate to the possibility that um, Americans could have been involved in the Oak Island story, not the least of which what we'll get to uh, in a little while is how uh, President Jefferson is actually related to Philip Sidney, who wrote his famous book, Arcadia. Yeah, we're definitely going to be jumping yeah, into that absolutely. too. <laughs> I wanted to ask you real quick, so about you know about Oak Island, you know, and we you know about the whole in the American Revolution. One of the things that was really curious to me was, and I and I think you, were, you kind of alluded to this on the show when you were on the the Curse of Oak Island, was that now do you did you do you believe that there is or was a treasure on Oak Island, and what do you think became of it if it's no longer there? I think it's still possible something is there. It, that's kind of a, a toss-up question, really. I know. <laughs> uh, there, there could be something there, but there's a lot of indication that in a lot of the things that are, you know, have come up on the show, like the Danville, the Don V expedition. Yes, yes. That, that yep. the, the payroll from that could be involved, mm-hmm. or the payrolls from Fortress Lewisburg from the two uh-huh. sieges of that. And I did find some interesting information that the same man, uh, Jean Laborde, was the treasurer of Fortress Louisbourg during the second siege, and he had also earlier been the treasurer for the Don V expedition. Really? No, I did so, not know that. I'm not familiar with him. Who, uh, explain yeah. who he is a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, his name's Jean Laborde, and mm-hmm. he, he was stationed or part of the garrison there at Fortress Louisbourg, and he was the treasurer. So he kept track of all the accounts and had a staff of accountants and things like that, I'm sure. But what's interesting about him is after the second siege of Lewisburg, he was accused of misappropriating what would be worth $150 million today. Oh, my goodness. And so eventually, through a series of events, he paid half of that back. 
So there's at least still half of that missing somewhere wow. in the ether. And we, we see that during that era of history, the British sea captains were allowed to keep a large portion of whatever spoils they captured during times of war. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's even the possibility that some of that was hidden on Oak Island for a period of time that they had difficulty getting to it due to the kind of the changing winds of in Acadia that French owns it now, France owns it now, England owns it now. It went back and forth a lot. And (laughs) a lot of French people still stayed there even during the times that England controlled it. Mm -hmm. So it may have been difficult for them to recover something like that. Right. But what, what, that really leads us to is the interesting similarities uh, between the construction of the money pit and the presence of the 90 foot stone that were mentioned in a book that was first printed in 1580. Yes. Go ahead. You go ahead. Is, John, I was going to say, it's, it's very similar to the Enochian vaults. And, Courtney, you and I have discussed that before. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on, I know you have a book called Oak Island and the Arcadian Mysteries. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the 90-foot stone, the Enochian vaults, if there's a similarity. Um, and also, you had mentioned, uh, and we had talked briefly about it, a pirate by the name of Peter Easton. Um, right. who also had a money pit story um, in Newfoundland. Um, I wonder if you could tie kind of those ideas together for us. Sure. Well, well first of all, the, the story that's in Philip Sidney's book, Arcadia, involves a treasure pit situated beneath an oak tree. And as part of the story, they dig down into the pit and they encounter a, a stone that's described like a tombstone, you know, a squared off carved stone that had what's termed Aristomenes box atop the stone. Mm -hmm. So in Greek mythology, Aristomenes was a general in the land of Arcadia who buried a treasure in Arcadia. And the treasure he buried may have been a votive statue of Pallas Athena. In some versions of the story, in another version, it was a tablet that described the Eleusinian mysteries, which Mm -hmm. is kind of very mysterious part of Greek mythology that nobody really knows what those were comprised of. So a tablet that displayed this would have been considered of value. And that's why Sidney probably included it in the plot of the book. So in the book, the box is full of poetry and, and parchments, similar to things that they have found at depth on Oak Island, pieces of parchment and book bindings or pieces of leather. And things like that. Mm -hmm. But the tombstone mentioned is kind of analogous to the 90-foot stone. And even in the story in the book, it was said to cover the entrance to a vault where a treasure would be. Mm. So the similarities in this story to the way the Oak Island story is told in the story of the three young men is kind of surprising. In that it it goes back a, a lot of time in history to where there was a huge value of Arcadia and the Arcadian concept that really goes far back into Roman history, even via the value of the poet Virgil, mm-hmm. who defined the Arcadian theme and pastoral poetry for the first time that later became kind of a mania uh, of aristocrats in Europe and royalty. And that that's possibly could lead us to the reason why the money pit seems to be constructed, as you pointed out, 
reminiscent of the nine layered vault of Enoch that has the golden triangle at the bottom with the, the tetra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tetragrammaton on that, the unspoken name of God. God. That is, uh, uh, during the era in the later 1700s was a big Masonic concept and Solomonic concept, how Enoch is involved in the story of, mm-hmm. of Solomon. So some of the same themes leading to more modern Freemasonry could, were also involved in sure. Sidney's book in his description of the money pit in the book. Which so, is very reminiscent of the 13th degree of masonry that Alan Butler discussed in one of the Oak Island episodes with the money pit being a thrushing floor and then the nine layers going down. Uh, very reminiscent of the Enochian Vault story, very reminiscent of Arcadia. So it's kind of an ongoing theme um, over and over again, almost like it's an esoteric truth that's being taught over and over and over again. Sure. So later, yeah. people who were familiar with that, Freemasons would look at that story and kind of have an identification with it that they knew it resembled that story. Mm-hmm. And even previous to that, the, 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 this unusual value of Philip Sidney's book in English royalty was also known by all of their associates and people who lionized Philip Sidney. He had an unusual amount of admiration for him mm-hmm. as he, he passed away in uh, 1586. He died in battle in the Netherlands. And he just became kind of this legendary uh, literary figure and representative of English culture to them involving Arcadia, which is also highly valued by French royalty mm-hmm. and uh, other groups like the famous uh, De Medici family mm-hmm. uh, of Florence, that, that this over time Virgil even came to be recognized kind of like Nostradamus, that they would use his work for by applying bibliomancy or the random selection of a page that would answer whatever question they had, like a form of divination. So over time, he Virgil just became valued to that degree. And the theme of Arcadia that we see organizations like the Academy of Arcadia of the Vatican <laughs> being formed, and it even became ingrained in the stories of uh, Rain Le Chateau, associated with other lost treasures like the temple treasure and uh, concepts like that over time. So the the treasure association with Arcadia is no surprise that then the story of the three young men does resemble the story in Sidney's book. Yep. Yeah. And And that's what Jake, Jake Roberts had brought that up here with the uh, talking about the three uh, sojourners. And what's interesting about that, uh, Cord, right. is the the it's almost as if because we know uh, McGinnis was in his thirties, early thirties, when he actually mm-hmm. did make it to Nova right. Scotia, and he was given the land grant by the crown. Um, but it's almost as if the money pit story has been retrofitted to actually fall into the kind of theme or um, the monomyth of the other stories. Sure, um, very that much been so. done at various times. You're right. Sure. I mean, we we're looking at a time span that goes back to Philip Sidney, who was giving a land grant in Acadia, Sir Humphrey Gilbert. This is in the, the 15, um, early 1580s, late 1570s. Mm-hmm. So they, it was originally claimed by England at that time. And it's interesting because there's even this, this 
really scant source that claims Sir Humphrey Gilbert found gold in Nova Scotia. Hmm. But the, then when you look into that deeper, there's no proof he was ever there. Mm. And the same source is just repeated over and over again. But that's an interesting uh, concept that may apply to Oak Island, too, and the secrecy there that there was later a gold rush in Nova Scotia during the 1860s. So there is natural gold there. Mm-hmm. That If people at earlier times had known about that, that could be the source of some of the secrecy and the purpose for the money pit and other concepts like that as well that time. And then we go on to where if this was known of over a span of time, people could have added to the story or added their attributes to it in the way the money pit resembled the nine layered vault Mm -hmm. and the story of the money pit in Sydney's book. So it's hard to pin down an exact time frame that even though we're coming up with a lot of other information that does seem germane to the whole story, it's still frustrating because you still can't pin down exactly who done it. (laughs) Exactly. We know, we know the McGinnis story was post 1795 for sure. Um, but yeah, where and when and how the retrofit was done is, is just an unknown. He's also right. interesting, too, because Daniel McGinnis was originally from North Carolina. He was. According to a lot of sources. So here's another, quote, American colonist that was a loyalist that did come to Nova Scotia. And one of the most interesting things I found out about Daniel McGinnis was his possible relation to the Jacobite heroine Flora MacDonald. Uh, Flora MacDonald had helped uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie escape from Scotland after the 1745 Jacobite Rebellion. Mm -hmm. And attached to that story are all these legends of, quote, Jacobite gold. Hmm. The Vatican did donate what was said to be 400,000 livres a month towards the Jacobite Rebellion that were Mm -hmm. then delivered by the French to Scotland to aid him in, in that. So when the rebellion f- failed, Flora MacDonald was, was charged with aiding him in his escape, getting him to a ship where he could go back to France. And also at that time, a man named John McGinnis was also punished for helping Flora, uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie escape. Interesting. So later, subsequently, both the McGinnis family and Flora MacDonald ended up living living in Anson County, North Carolina, which is named for Admiral Anson of Shugborough Hall, where the Shepherd's Monument mm-hmm. is located. Interesting. And their families became intermarried there. So mm-hmm. after the war, they both ended up in Nova Scotia, where she lived for about a year. And, of course, the rest is history with Daniel McGinnis, Vaughn, and Smith yep. discovering the money pit. So that's an awful strange association there, too that involves a lot of missing gold mm-hmm. that's in turn again associated in england with the anson family because through some marriages uh when flora mcdonald was in prison she was aided by lady primrose who kind of raised money for her and allowed her to spend time at her home even while she was quote unquote Im- imprisoned so that is is very curious, too, that the Primroses later become intermarried with the Anson family hmm. and some of the other families of the ship's captains that were associated with Admiral Anson, including 
his fleet was involved in the second siege of Lewisburg. So there's lots of, of avenues by which large amounts of gold from Jacobite sources or the siege of Lewisburg, for example, or other more mundane piracy or harassment of Spanish shipping and things like that that could have been hidden on Oak Island that this circle of people would have been aware of. Mm-hmm. And the pirate Peter Easton? Well, he was a little bit earlier, and he's also in the circle of okay. people who may have been uh, knowledgeable about Philip Sidney and the works of Bacon and uh, Devere and all those mysteries surrounding the works of Shakespeare mm-hmm. because he was an Elizabethan sea captain who was tasked with guarding the Cupid's colony in Newfoundland. Correct. And this is starting about 1610. And we know Sir Francis Bacon had an interest in the Cupid's colony as well as the Virginia Company. But uh, Peter Easton is really one of the only documented pirate stories that you'll see where they know that he got away with what was said to be two million (laughs) English pounds worth of booty. And uh, his story is interesting because he he was valued under um, the monarchy of Queen Elizabeth. But when James I took over, he became a criminal and went to privateering. And that is when he was said to amass this large fortune, mostly by raiding Spanish shipping mm-hmm. off of the coast of Africa. And he would return to Newfoundland to resupply and uh, conscript more sailors. He had a fleet of 10 ships at one point, mm-hmm. he said. Wow. But what is really interesting about Easton is on his base on Odoran Island, there off the kind of south central coast of Newfoundland, there's another money pit legend there really can you talk to us about that yeah Yeah, please it's fascinating (laughs) right of course the the information is scant about that but there are a couple of narratives that say people had discovered a pit where oaken uh, boards had covered it and they couldn't excavate it because it was near a swampy area but they obviously could tell this pit had been man-made similar to the description of the money pit So given Easton's uh, associations, he would have known a lot of the other ship's captains of Queen Elizabeth, like uh, Bartholomew Gosnold and Captain Archer, who went to the Newport area in 1602, uh, Captain John Smith, who's famous at Jamestown, and also Sir Francis Drake, and some of the other inner circle of people who had this appreciation for Philip Sidney and his work. So it's not out of the question that Peter Easton could have also been involved in the Oak Island story. He was in the the right place at the right time. Yeah. And uh, there is a totally separate legend that there was a money pit associated with him. So other compelling part of that story is that he is said to have kind of defected to the house of Savoy in Monaco where he took this fortune that he had recovered and he became a Marquis of Savoy or the Marquis of Panclieri at that time, which is in the region of Saborga, Italy, which used to be the principality of Saborga. And there's all these legends of the Knights Templar going to Saborga with the quote, great secret that they had discovered in the Holy land, that that would be the original nine Knights Templar. 
and there, there's a story like that in Saborga that they brought something there that was composed of information hmm. that was a threat to the church and uh, other interests like monarchies in Europe at that time. So it's interesting that he ended up in that region, and he just led a kind of a quiet life after that as the Marquis. But it's interesting that he's associated with the Savoy, uh, where all the English monarchs banked from the mm. Republic of Genoa. And in fact, the English flag even comes from the flag of the Republic of Genoa, right. that they actually paid tribute to Genoa to use at first. So the, white, the original English flag of the white field with the red cross comes to us from Genoa. Hmm, interesting. So it's interesting that yeah. Easton later got involved in that kind of circle of people in, in the early 1600s, a little later That's in history. But uh, with the money people, I mean, they're even involved with the symbology of the city of London, of St. George and the dragon that a lot of people, of course, associate with the Knights Templar. But if you really look into it, that, the more direct association is with the imagery and iconography of the Republic of Genoa. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, Judy uh, Rudabish is asking this question here. It just says Facebook user, but that's who it is. Judy um, asking about what's your opinion on Zena's map? Have you have you studied that at all? Hi, Judy, first of all. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I I. I, I do have a problem believing the Cremona document is an authentic document from the medieval times. Now, with that said, I still think it has a lot of valuable information. I, I probably would go for Francis Bannerman being the actual creator of that because, because he had the background as an arms and relic dealer. I mean, this man had a very extensive collection of, of, weaponry, uh, medieval armor, and he was fascinated with all of that history of the Knights Templar. And he also came from a strong Jacobite background that I referred to possibly Daniel McGinnis and Flora MacDonald having just a little later in the 19th century when those sentiments were still well and alive mm -hmm. uh, during that time period. So he had built his Scottish castle on the Hudson River that many of you may have heard of as part of the Ramona document story. And interestingly, the castle is exactly due west of the Newport Tower. Really? So in all of these structures, these octagonal structures that we're talking about that I believe were inspired from Sidney's book as well, the mention of the two star-shaped lodges connected by the tail of a comet in the book, that the Newport Tower is actually associated with that and not any earlier uh, versions of history as many people suppose. Now, those things are possible, but from what I've found, it seems to have been built later. So I think Francis Bannerman intentionally built his castle on the Hudson at exactly 270 degrees due west from the Newport Tower. Now, if we look at Zena's map, that was a later edition that she found in the back of a book, if I understand correctly. Correct. Right, underneath the, the back lip or something like that, yeah. Right, so due to legal reasons, they can't show the original Cremona document maps on the show, from what I understand. Yeah, that I'm not sure about, but yep. That's so correct. interestingly, 
Oak Island is included on the map from the original, quote, Cremona document, and it has a longitude marked of 66 degrees and six minutes in Roman numerals. Now, many people assume that that uses a prime meridian or zero point because all of longitude coordinates have a zero point like Greenwich, England mm -hmm. today is the zero point that we all refer to. Right. But, but most maps from that era refer to the Paris meridian as the zero point. So I did the math and calculated the arc minutes and everything using the coordinate from Oak Island, and it led to a meridian that had been created by the Cassini family in the mid-1700s. So that meridian had not been defined before that. And the meridian also represented a dividing line between their famous, very famous and very accurate map of France that the Cassini family of astronomers had produced uh, and finished by the late 1700s. So that meridian was also used by them in experiments to cal calculate the exact size and shape of the Earth. So being that that meridian had not been created before, and that is what the coordinates on Oak Island in the Cremona document map are referencing, indicates that at least the map portion of that was referencing a much later system of longitude and latitude that when found, people in the know would realize that the Cassini family had created that. Mm. And the Cassinis are also very interesting. The Cassini space probe was named for them. They're very famous. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, the astronomers and cartographers. And Cassini one, the, the elder Cassini, was even the astrologer for the French king for a while because back in those days in the late 17th century, astronomer and astrologer was kind of a crossover in disciplines that he fulfilled that too. So it's also interesting that he, Cassini I, was also from the Principality of Seborga, and he was a Knight of Malta. He was born in, in uh, Perinaldo, what is Perinaldo, Italy today, that is only about two kilometers from the town of Seborga and was included in the boundaries of the Principality of Seborga back in the days of the Knights Templar. So those kind of connections are very interesting that but when you go through other stories, like the story of Rain-le-Chateau, which also involves Arcadian imagery, that the Cassini name pops up a lot because the Paris Meridian itself, that they legally defined for the first time as part of that story. Hmm. So even there are interesting connections using geography, even between Rain-le-Chateau and Shugborough Hall, that, that indicate that there's a common brain trust behind a series of stories that may be meant to kind of lead you on a quest, you know, from place to place where you learn these different histories at each point. And that does not mean that they would be so heartless not to leave something <laughs> for you to find if there's a treasure involved. That they probably that there would be something, you know, real tangible that could be considered a treasure but to me a lot of the treasure is kind of what you learn as you go along when you investigate the people involved the people mentioned mm -hmm. the history of the places you're looking at and uh oak island is no exception 
I got a question, Court. Do you think Oak Island was, and this, you know, I'm going back and forth with a fellow researcher, um, an initiation point, a point where people came to be initiated in some sort of secret society, a uh, place for refueling and ship repair? I mean, what was its function? Was it symbolic? Was it it's pragmatic, both? You know, I'm always under the impression that it was meant to be both symbolic yeah. and, and, you know, and then, and then if you could relate that back to the whole kind of map and the money pit, that would be great. Right. Well, of course, all of those things are possible. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there could have been like careening ships or cleaning the hulls of ships going on there, mm -hmm. you know, recalking the hulls and, and activities like that. That also could relate to things being hidden there or it being known as a, an out-of-the-way place where uh, ships also had access to. Sure. So, as we discussed before, over time, the folklore aspect of it, or the initiatory aspect that you suggest that people mm -hmm. would notice how it resembled the nine-layered vaults mm -hmm. of Enoch, Correct. Yep. or another set of people would recognize that this resembled the story in Philip Sidney's book, Correct. that it would have meaning to them. Correct. So, yeah, they could have prompted people. I feel the same way about the octagonal powder magazine in Williamsburg exactly. and the Newport Tower, that these are things that you're supposed to approach where there's a kind of a, a cover story given mm -hmm. that kind of sucks you into really looking into it. And then you start to come up with the similarities between more ancient legends and, and the reality of the way people valued it at the time the the mythical version of it sure. also developed so these things can morph over time but as in the other case it, it it i do think it's still possible that something is at oak island uh in the fact that things that they're recovering there even matches kind of this story in philip sydney's book with the parchments and possibly even the human remains because even the whole arcadian theme is a memento mori Correct. Or part in part of, of remembrance of those who have passed before, such as in the famous Nicolas Poussin painting where they're all contemplating the tomb. And that comes straight from the poetry of Virgil, where Daphnis, the pastoral Arcadian poet, is the one who's in the tomb. So people have taken that in an interpretive way. In how I pointed out, Virgil was valued like Nostradamus and applied all kinds of different possibilities to who is in the tomb so oak island in that way does have these funerary overtones as does the story of the powder magazine and colonial rebel nathaniel bacon in williamsburg huh so can you talk to us about nathaniel bacon's connection and <laughs> you know you gotta go sure. there sure. sure that'd be great well the, the whole i guess mania over the quote bruton vault or Bacon's Vault in Colonial Williamsburg came from Marie Bauer Hall, the wife of the famous Masonic mystic Manly P. Hall. I'm sure a lot of people out there may be familiar with who he is. So through a series of investigations, she became convinced that Nathaniel Bacon, who was a distant cousin of Sir Francis Bacon, had come to Jamestown with a stash of Sir Francis Bacon's papers. So we all know how important that is and all of the speculation with regarding to who actually penned the works of Shakespeare right. 
yep. who laid out the first folio was bacon involved. So that's a very popular story. But as I looked into that, that seemed kind of implausible. But what, what you do find is Nathaniel Bacon himself may be the center of what that story was supposed to mean. At one point, Miss Hall noticed that the tombstone of James Nicholson was laid out like a page in the first folio of Shakespeare. And James Nicholson was personal friends with Thomas Jefferson. Now, his date of death was 1773. So they reasoned that the number of feet from Wren Hall on the campus of William and Mary, which is part of this alignment along Duke of Gloucester Street, that is kind of like a, a new Jerusalem, or some people term a new Atlantis array of architecture. If you go 1,773 feet, it leads to where, quote, Bacon's vault was supposed to be. And that would be under the bell tower of the original church that was there just a few yards from the church now that is there that was later built in 1715. So she did a good job of figuring that part out. But from then on, my opinion kind of diverges because one of the biggest mysteries in Virginia archaeology is where are the remains of Nathaniel Bacon? They've never found his grave or place of burial because during the revolt that he started, which really was successful and took over most of the colony, he unexpectedly passed away and then the rebellion just fell apart and his remains were hidden somewhere. And this is where we get into kind of the Rosicrucian overtones of the whole story because as we all know, one of the core tenets of Rosicrucian thought involves the missing remains of Christian Rosenkreutz being hidden in an unknown chamber with a treasure mm-hmm. and a library. So I can see why Mrs. Hall would even make these assumptions if you're a studier of Bacon and all of the mysteries surrounding the first sure. folio that she would assume that. But I think the followers of Nathaniel Bacon secretly buried him in the churchyard. Hmm. Because if his remains would have been found, they would have been disrespected, you know, drawn, quartered, beheaded, his, possibly his head displayed on a pike, which even is supported later by the story of Blackbeard's head that was displayed on a pike in Hampton Harbor for a couple right. of years. Yep. And then was said to be taken down and fashioned into the base of a silver punch bowl. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And even though that story sounds oh, yeah, outrageous, that hey, yeah. <laughs> it sounds outrageous like it's it out does. of a movie or something, right? Yeah. But uh, there's actual sources of people seeing that as late as the 1920s. So that is how Nathaniel Bacon would have been treated. And I think his followers... Uh, wanted to avoid that, so secretly buried him in the Bruton Parish churchyard, which later, not until the 1930s, was kind of conflated into a a vault of Sir Francis Bacon's papers being hidden there. Wow. So that whole story is interesting in that... That is. The the conflict of Bacon's rebellion was in 1676, just a hundred years before the American Revolution, Mm -hmm. that this was a conflict between people who used to be indentured servants that didn't have any land against the landed gentry who controlled everything going on in the colony. So 
the Declaration of Nathaniel Bacon was later an inspiration for Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. This is one of his stated inspirations for that. So then it's interesting that he was close friends with James Nicholson, who was the steward of the College of William and Mary, and that I even found a source of Jefferson paying Nicholson an undisclosed amount of money a year before he passed. Really? So this whole entire mystery, including his tombstone that's laid out similar to a page in the first folio, it says, Dear Reader, and everything, and has a statement like that, and uh, that Jefferson was privy to this, which was local, locally probably a cloistered secret that began being kept a secret from the followers of Nathaniel Bacon. So though that's a long story, we can see that wow. the connections it has and why it may have been kept a secret over time and how uh, President Jefferson was inspired by the declaration of Nathaniel Bacon and he may have been among some of the people who knew this secret wow. because he had been a student at William and Mary where he, he studied things like astronomy and land surveying mm -hmm. where the powder magazine is. And that's one of these structures that's octagonal. It's very similar to the Newport Tower. In fact, one of the facets of the octagon of the Newport Tower creates an arc on the globe that, quote, points directly to the Newport Tower. Oh, really? So they may have even been aware of that then, obviously. I believe they were, and that the powder magazine in Colonial Williamsburg was built to be an orologion or one of these uh, structures that denote an axis mundi that have all of these alchemical concepts and astronomical concepts associated. And that's one of the things I learned when I was looking into why Thomas Jefferson would build octagonal structures. Right. So he was initiated into the true purpose of these structures that kind of all go back to the Tower of the Winds of Athens, which many people speculate had a pressurized water clock in it that would allow even the Greeks to have fixed longitude at that time. So as we go on at Thomas Jefferson's estate Monticello and Poplar Forest, it's even a recorded part of history that he established prime meridians at both of his homes. Huh. Huh. So these are things that you use like an axis where it may be used to indicate a direction to another point of mystery or that later people may have used in other treasure stories or stories like the story of Nathaniel Bacon because the powder magazine in Williamsburg also quote points to where Nathaniel's Bacon's grave is or where Miss Hall thought Bacon's vault was located. Wow. And there was yeah. even as John went looking recently, there used to be a stained glass rendering of nathaniel bacon in the powder magazine but it's not there anymore right so we think it's where where would you guys you guys were talking about this the other day where do you think it is now well they moved it to quote what is known of as bacon's castle over on the south side of the james river that uh, nathaniel bacon captured and kind of used as a headquarters for a while during the rebellion that he didn't even own it but it came to be known of as bacon's castle mm -hmm later in history and they have tours where you can go tour bacon's castle now and learn all about bacon's rebellion that's one of the biggest monuments 
uh, to Bacon's Rebellion that there is. So it's no surprise that they moved that there. Yep. I know this is really interesting too, and I, and we got Jake Roberts is actually in the uh, in the group watching tonight, and welcome Jake. Thank you for being here, and he's a, a researcher into all things uh, Sir Francis Bacon, and uh, so I'm going to have to ask him about that a little bit and see uh, see just what uh, you know. I, I had not known all these different stories about Nathaniel Bacon, so that's really interesting. Now he and you said earlier that he how was he related again? He was the nephew. He was a distant cousin of the real Sir Francis Bacon. And there was also, it's funny, there's another Nathaniel Bacon there that is his cousin that's older. And he was one of the landed gentry even that he was fighting against Mm. during Bacon's Rebellion. Right. So it's interesting that later um, they, they found the elder Nathaniel Bacon's tombstone on the property he used to own. And they moved that into the bell tower room of the Bruton Parish Church today. So when you actually go in there today and look, you see the tombstone with the bacon arms on it. And it says Nathaniel Bacon. And it's where one of the locations where Miss Hall thought Bacon's vault was located. So literally, there is a Bacon's vault or tombstone in the bell tower room of the Bruton Parish Church today that you'll see if you go there. Mm hmm. There's Jake popped in now, and he said it's a really interesting story. Court digs deep. Yes, he does. <laughs> I try. He gets into, <laughs> where he finds the time to dig up all this research, I don't know. But I tell you what, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, and it all seems to be tying together. I mean, if you look at all these different angles, as you have shown us here or described here, it, it they all tie together. It's not a coincidence. Absolutely not a coincidence. I know, and it's crazy because you at first you want to kind of fight the urge to say that you know it's like you're that guy in the movie conspiracy theory with the map with the strings (laughs) you know all connected together and you're like this is just wacky that you know the same names the same themes keep being emphasized uh with a treasure and a lot of them are are linked to the political things that are going on during the era in which Mm -hmm. they happen but also linked to to real treasures too that were missing so i can see why you know, from one point of view, to attach the story of a, a golden treasure to something that you want to make people learn mm-hmm. goes again back to this Rosicrucian core belief of the treasure and the tomb. There's always a funerary aspect, a treasure, and then information in a form of a library or, or, or you know, Gnostic uh, documents or hidden lost mm-hmm. documents and concepts are involved. Mm-hmm. Even going back to Saborga with the great secret of Saborga yep. and the legend of the Knights Templar and what they may have known that was a threat and things like that. Sure. So there's some basis in truth to all that, but it's it's kind of um, a common way to get people looking into it, too, to pique their interest and, and get them into it. So and, what, you're, what you're saying, Corey, is the real treasure might be some esoteric truth that the, the actual places are teaching and the mythology is teaching, Correct. That's entirely possible that that could be the main reason for it. But as I said, it would have been really heartless for a real treasure (laughs) in some cases not to be involved because um, it just seems logical that 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 could also be the reason that the other folklore was applied to a real treasure. Correct. So somebody says, oh, there's a story about a missing treasure at Oak Island. So 
we can add all of these things to it that so people learn about Enoch and Freemasonry <laughs> or the story of Philip Sidney and his impact on the whole kind of later Baconian, you know, milieu of mystery and intrigue associated with all of that mm-hmm. that, that draws people into it. Mm-hmm. So one more question, Jeff. And uh, No, no, please. You're the co-host. Between the two, <laughs> Oak Island or Williamsburg, if there's an actual, if there's a place for an actual treasure, what would you, where would you lay your money? What would you bet? Well, I think the treasure in Williamsburg was kind of allegorical in that we're just talking about the remains of Nathaniel Bacon with the kind of Rosicrucian overtone attached to that story. But I, I, I think if you look at the, the British Navy during the, the 18th century, and all of the money they captured from France and Spain. We had the siege of Havana that a lot of people have speculated also could be part of the treasure or even going back to Sir Francis Drake, who was a personal friend of Philip Sidney's as well. He's a good suspect for a real treasure to have been put there. And uh, all of these people involved in those naval operations were associated with Admiral Anson of Shugborough Hall, which was part of his fleet. Mm. And we know that the whole layout of Shugborough Hall is an Arcadia. The whole of the architecture there is meant to invoke that. They have a reproduction of the Tower of the Winds of Athens there, which also may, in fact, refer to the structures in Sydney's book. Same theme. They have the Shepherd's Monument there with the Nicolas Poussin rendering. It's the same theme. That kind of leads you there. And the that family, um, Admiral Anson gained his fortune, first of all, from capturing the Manila Treasure Galleon during his circumnavigation voyage. He's famous as being the third Englishman to circumnavigate. And so that made him very wealthy. And his uh, brother was also independently wealthy, and he's actually the one who built the Shepherd's Monument <laughs> due to being a major stockholder in the South Sea Company who sold all of his stock early before it crashed. So he became fabulously wealthy from that as well, and that's what allowed them to kind of uh, build their own personal Arcadia there at Shugborough Hall. Hmm. And, and what's really interesting, I think I read this in your in something you wrote, was, was Philip Sidney connected to John D. Yes, uh, it, many sources state he was a student of John That's Dee's, what I thought. That he's mentioned in his journal um, several times, as, as well as his sister, Mary Sidney Herbert, the Countess of Pembroke. And this is where we're getting into maybe the, the true authorship of the Shakespeare <laughs> question, right? Correct. Because uh, even before... Uh, slowly kind of came to the conclusion that what is known as the Wilton Writers Circle of Mary Sidney Herbert, the Countess of Pembroke, was who was behind the works of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Philip Sidney had written his book Arcadia for his sister, and it became even known of later as the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. So their associations are even interesting because For instance, we know there's this kind of conspiracy theory that Sir Francis Bacon was actually uh, the son of Queen Elizabeth and Sir Robert Dudley. Mm -hmm. If that were true, Philip Sidney and his sister would have been Bacon's first cousins. 
because Robert Dudley was their uncle. Hmm. And then we see that's something even, Jake was talking about. That's, yeah, that's Jake Roberts right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then later we see Philip Sidney's nephews becoming very powerful courtiers of uh, James the first and Charles the first and so on mm-hmm. that are the subjects of the dedication of the first folio of Shakespeare. We have William and Philip Herbert, Philip being named for his uncle, Philip Sidney being the dedicatees, which also infers and, and other people espouse that they actually funded the printing of the first folio where we know that is where all the coded portions are present. Correct. Possibly due to the way the first folio is laid out. Now, even given that, Sir Francis Bacon still could have easily been a huge part of that. You know, all the theories about Bacon range from him being the true author of the plays of Shakespeare to him just being involved in the coded portion of the first folio. But recently, what I've been looking into is interesting that another suspect, of course, to have produced the works of Shakespeare is the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere. And we I've see. I've heard that name before. Tell us yeah, about that. Well, Philip Herbert, the nephew of Philip Sidney, was married to his daughter, Susan. So. Earlier in history, Philip Sidney himself and Edward de Vere kind of had this antagonistic relationship that began with a, a fist fight they got into over a game of tennis <laughs> where they <laughs> wanted to duel each other and everything, and the queen had to stop them you know, from doing that. So some of the theories revolve around the fact that, of course, de Vere was the actual author of the Shakespeare plays and that later Philip Herbert and his brother William had covered this up with a kind of conspiracy to tell you William Shakespeare had done it. Mm-hmm. Do not let it be known that Edward de Vere was the true author of, of said plays, which Edward de Vere may have even not wanted people to know because he criticized nobles and, some of the plays had controversial aspects to them where he could have actually gotten in trouble mm-hmm. for doing that. So there, there's a lot of uh, inference and there's still other suspects and other factors involved. But to me, it seems clear that the, the Herbert family uh, were involved in all of that. They had all the right associations and, and uh, connections, which, which then leads us now to da da thomas jefferson Mm, yes please because if we look at the family of philip sydney he married the daughter of the quote spy master of queen elizabeth sir francis walsingham so sydney was walsingham's son-in-law walsingham's brother-in-law was a man named thomas randolph who was a direct forebearer of thomas jefferson via his mother's Randolph family. So here we have, you know, Thomas Randolph was also working in league with other intelligence assets like Dr. John D and a man named Robert Beale, who is part of the same Beale family of the famous treasure story in Virginia that um, they were even the liaison between Mary Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth. So that's the kind of, 
position they held in the diplomatic world of Elizabethan England, that Thomas Jefferson now, this supplies us with it, not a blood relation to Philip Sidney, but a family relation. Hmm. So as I look into this even more, I found out that Jefferson's other forebearer, William Randolph III, in Virginia, had named his home Wilton House, just hmm. west of Williamsburg. Hmm. And Wilton House is where Sir Philip Sidney wrote the book Arcadia. Interesting. So <laughs> this is even interesting because the Randolph family was known to own a, quote, copy of the f false folio of Shakespeare. False folio. Now, I'm not yeah, familiar with that. Yeah, what's the false folio? It was an earlier printing that included many of the plays, but not all of them, and then some a few other plays that were later determined not to have been part of the canon of Shakespeare. Mm. So it was known as the false folio. So even later in Randolph family history in the 19th century, we see family members being named Philip Sidney Randolph and Algernon Sidney Randolph. And here we're led again to the imagery of the Declaration of Independence because Algernon Sidney, his writing ended up have, getting him beheaded by Charles II. He lived in the late 1600s, latter 1600s. So some of his writing was a said inspiration for Thomas Jefferson in his painting of the Declaration of Independence. Huh. So we know now that Thomas Jefferson was fully aware of everything I've just told you. Yep. His family valued it. They were intimately involved, Had even through... At the time of Elizabethan England, or just after the time of Elizabeth, there was another Thomas Randolph that he was actually actually directly related to that was a poet. And he was part of the circle of Ben Johnson, who wrote the dedication of the first folio dedicated to Philip Sidney's nephews. Hmm. So he was in that circle so much that the circle of poets was known as the tribe of Ben. And so Thomas Randolph, Jefferson's forebear, was a member of that, and he was part of this set of people who may have been aware of all of these secrets we've been discussing with kind of an esoteric value of the works of Philip Sidney sure. and the works of Shakespeare and the book Arcadia as well. So there's, there's ample evidence that, that Thomas Jefferson knew of all of this, and this kind of speaks to earlier what we were talking about via... American influence in the Oak Island story. So here we have a huge value of the concept of Arcadia and Philip Sidney in English royalty. And here we have one of their nemesis, Thomas Jefferson, also being intimately aware of how that concept is valued and all the details of it. And we know Jefferson was a huge fan of Sir Francis Bacon. Uh, two actual Bacon family members worked for him at Monticello, managing his estate. Uh, later, uh, just a little later after he was president, a man named um, William Burwell was his personal secretary, and the Burwell family in part are descendant of the sister of the elder Nathaniel Bacon I described earlier. Uh -huh. So he even surrounded himself with Bacon family members and from that had their heritage in colonial Virginia and, and were 
somewhat related to Sir Francis Bacon as cousins. Wow. So the Jefferson had a portrait of Sir Francis Bacon. He had an extensive Correct. art collection that kind of exposes some of his esoteric values, including a portrait of Mary Magdalene and other uh, concepts he may have wow. picked up in France. So I used to think maybe Jefferson had learned all this when he went to France later in, in his career. But as I looked more into his family, I was just freaked out to find out he was actually related to Sydney. Yeah, that and is. And that that's, his family had an obvious trail of influence and appreciation of, of this. So, for instance, if Thomas Jefferson had found the... Uh, heard the story of the money pit mm -hmm. he would have right away known to associate it with the story in sydney's book so that could lead to an american source for the whole oak island story back wow. to that theme we started with originally yep. it took a while to get back around to that. <laughs> <laughs> no but it's absolutely all related you had no to, doubt. Wait to put it in context to make that make sense so yeah you know, during the revolution. And, you know, and, yeah. and, and I was, you guys shared some, or sent me some pictures here before we got started. And before we jump away or get away from this Arcadia thing, um, I wanted to, you know, and, and when I look at these, these, these pictures, I'm going to pop it up here in just a second. The first thing, when I see something like this, I think about Jake Roberts because Jake is, he looks at these kind of things. He goes, oh, look at, he just sees all these symbols and everything. And it's this sure. one here. Well, well, you know, obviously we and I showed a couple different pictures of this, um, of the of this, you know, particular writings by Sir our Philip Sidney. Why the different? What's this one all about? What's what's that? Well, that's a later flyleaf to an edition of the book Arcadia by Philip Sidney, mm -hmm. and it does show all of these kind of Greek or Roman mythological char characters, Geomatria. I can't read them right now because the picture's so small on my yeah, I screen. I know. Sorry about that. But but I can see why Jake would see a lot of hidden meaning and things like this. And really, there there's a lot of meaning just in what you see as well. So don't neglect yeah. to look at that either. That this kind of like t tips you off to the mind frame. And as uh, John had pointed out, even the liberal arts are referred to in these characters. Correct. So a lot of practical information is, is always included in a lot of these things, as well as the alchemical Rosicrucian and hidden things. There's a lot of practical science. And we know, in part, this tradition of hiding things in, in artwork like this and other things also included um, practical science that may have been considered heretical at one point. So they right. developed codes and symbols Correct. Correct. That, that helped people identify of uh, things like that mm -hmm. as well as more deeper uh coded meanings that that uh john and jake are interested in yeah and that's what fascinates me and they they have that kind of mind where they look at this and go oh look at this right here and that means this <laughs> and this means, and i'm just like what? wait a minute <laughs> right, right. i'm more adept i'm into art history and and the thematic meanings of artwork Mm -hmm. And that kind of line of it, I'm not a code breaker or anything like that. I would refer uh, to either one of those guys if I wanted to crack a code that I thought was there mm -hmm. that are popular. But sometimes you, you can figure out the same thing from looking at the context of the artwork and the Correct. thematic meanings of it. Correct. Uh, like that. that's one experience I had with the Shepherd's Monument looking at that. Yeah. 
as opposed to most people looking at the coded portion. And I still came to the conclusion that that was actually referring to Philip Sidney's Arcadia and not necessarily all of the mysteries involving Niccolo Poussin, Mm -hmm. that they just used that picture to illustrate that concept in that in that instance. Now, the Shepherds of Arcadia, can you talk to me or talk to us, Court, about the location of that currently and how that kind of factors into some of the things that we've discussed? Sure. It's interesting. It's fascinating. This is kind of freaky. (laughs) 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 Because, uh, of course, we know uh, Nicolas Poussin created that painting. I'm not sure of the exact date, but he did it um, under a commission from Cardinal Ropigliosi, of the Vatican. He painted that the shepherds of Arcadia for him. And uh, Ropigliosi was a member of an artist guild associated with the Vatican that came to be known as the Academy of Arcadia, that they also had a a strong value of the Arcadian theme. And they even had uh, outdoor meeting places like in the sacred groves of Greece and things like that, that, that were festooned with memento mori of artists and church figures that they valued before that they would all take the time to contemplate what these people had accomplished during their life Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So we know later Louis the 14th came into possession of the painting and uh, it was at Versailles and that eventually after the French revolution, the painting came to be displayed at the Louvre Museum. And the Louvre was actually the original palace of French royalty, the first one that is much older than Versailles, that then became the National Museum of France, where all the artwork therein was owned by the French people. And so it's interesting that the painting is actually displayed on the Paris Meridian, (laughs) where it crosses the museum. Like the actual spot where you go see the painting, you'll be standing very close to the Paris Meridian itself. Wow. I didn't so know that's that. of interest in that. That painting is also associated with the story of Rain Le Chateau, which is situated along the Paris Meridian to the south. Oh, wow. So this speaks to one of the ways people use this imagery as a clue to tell you there's something more afoot. Right. But what I found, Back when I started looking into all of this from a geography perspective, then these buildings were meant to represent axes or, quote, point directions on the globe. I plotted the direction the Louvre Museum pointed to. And it points directly to Oak Island, Nova Scotia. Really? Yeah. Yes. So here we have the painting, Shepherds of Arcadia, there with the actual geographic orientation of the building and the two more modern pyramids in the courtyard of the Louvre that point to Oak Island, Nova Scotia. Wow. And to me, this was really interesting because if you go to the closing scene of the movie, The Da Vinci Code, Uh they're showing you this. Oh, really? Compass bearing when he goes to the top of the inverted pyramid. Yeah. And he believes Mary Magdalene is entombed beneath that mm-hmm. they actually oh. show you a brass marker an arago brass marker and those actually mark the paris meridian oh, and wow. in reality there isn't one on top of the inverted pyramid but the angle they show you with regard to true north on that is the angle 
that points to Oak Island. Oh wow! So that is now that's know. right up that's right up the alley of Court. I mean of uh, of of Corian Mole and uh, Christopher Morford because that's exactly the kind of stuff they get into. Oh right, my right, goodness! It, it's it's All fascinating. It's that same Arcadian theme, yeah. and then the painting becomes not necessarily teaching something it's now twofold and it, it it's also a marker right you know, based on its location which is it's fascinating that's wow. all included in my book oak island and the arcadian mysteries that mm -hmm. i published about four years ago now that that alignment is discussed in there and interestingly mm -hmm. if you go to the opposite direction on the globe the exact opposite way it points to the west or east excuse me it goes to migdal israel which really? is the birthplace of Mary Magdalene. Oh. So it, at least in the movie, that did involve Mary Magdalene. But it's interesting that later, the concept of Arcadia, via the story of Philip Sidney, I feel, becomes associated with Oak Island, and that the painting and the museum, quote, points to Oak Island. Unbelievable. Mm. Wow. Too many, too many uh, coincidences there again. As I mentioned before, that's just wow, and and that, that that and that's the kind of thing that you know I love having you, you know, you on the show and it and, and explaining this kind of thing to us because, I mean, it goes far beyond anything I could have ever imagined. It really does. And how he, you you know you remember this? <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't have any notes, John. He's like, like <laughs> I, I know, I'm sitting here with my. my <laughs> so you can imagine, like, the first time. I read the story in the book Arcadia that resembles the money pit. I mean, I had been, you know, word searching to death mm -hmm. the theme of Arcadia, and I kept seeing Philip Sidney's Arcadia mentioned in the hits I would get. Mm -hmm. So I finally decided to search through the book using search terms to see if it had any correlations. And sure as heck, while I was searching the word vault, <laughs> I come across the part of the book and I read this. It was like I was in an Alfred Hitchcock movie or something, wow. yep. you know, where the background's moving behind you. And, <laughs> yeah. and I just like couldn't believe it that this story resembles the story so wow. closely. And it's in a book named Arcadia that incidentally I left out before the Baron of Nova Scotia later amended the book with a new chapter. Yes. Yep. Yes. Tell yep. us about that real quick. Right. The, so, of course, the Baron of Nova Scotia was in this circle of people who would have all been aware of this. He was a courtier of James I and Charles I and so mm -hmm. on, and had been given the colony in Nova Scotia and everything. So in about 1613, there was kind of a hole in the story of Arcadia as it's told in the book. So he took it upon himself to write a new chapter that would kind of tie it all together better. And this is indeed included in all the versions of the book, including the one I own today. So the fact that he added a chapter that kind of alluded to the heritage of the Herbert family and mentions a black knight that does combat with the heroes in the book, mm -hmm. that there was a black knight in the Herbert family from Wales earlier in history. So he was kind of paying homage to the Countess of Pembroke, I believe just like Philip Sidney did in writing the book for his sister in the first place. So really that's just does infer that he too obviously could have been in on 
knowing what the money pit was or having constructed it as like James McQuiston supposes another Oak Island researcher yep. that could possibly tie into what he's found. And, uh, he's definitely could be one of the subjects that, that valued that book and would have known about the treasure story in that and how the money pit was described in Sydney's book. So wow. as, as time goes on, there are some things that indicate maybe it wasn't him, but definitely that that's a solid uh, view of things. Wow. I would say that it, there, that possibility is there. Right. And it's uh yeah, that's in it, you know, and, and we have, uh, I know, you know, also, I know, I don't know if she's still here, but Alessandra Nadavari was also in the chat here a little bit ago. And, uh, you know, that's, that's some of the stuff that I know she's very uh, familiar with too. Um, you know, one of those, we did have a couple of questions from some of the folks uh, that sure. posted a few questions prior to, mm-hmm. uh, and this is going to kind of pull us back here a little bit. Um one of the things, and we kind of talked about Sharon had asked the question about um, she was looking forward to seeing you on tonight and very interested in the colonial connection to Oak Island. We've kind of talked about that a little bit already tonight. But here's another one that I thought was really interesting was, um, and this was from uh, Teresa. She said, ask him about the layout of Washington, D.C. And, you know, I find it fascinating. And I've seen a few shows and stuff talking about it. what's your take on the layout of Washington, D.C.? Well, if I knew that for sure, that would be something. (laughs) (laughs) But no, obviously there are things, you know, hidden in there, kind of in the tradition of the geography I was referring to before, that even the National Mall is kind of a representation of the fora or forums of Rome. Uh And even really the the original layout of Williamsburg may have been an inspiration in that part. Oh, really? You think so? Washington, D.C., because it's a linear array with all of the monuments and uh, important government buildings, the colonial capital at one end and the Wren Hall at the campus of William and Mary on the other end, that that could have helped to inspire that. So we know Pierre L'Enfant originally designed uh, the street plan and Andrew Ellicott assisted him and kind of took over later after L'Enfant withdrew so being from this this set of uh, french people who helped us in the revolution mm-hmm. that l'enfant was part of a, a an esoteric tradition where he just had an open empty slate to create another versailles or another arcadian wonderland that many wealthy people had referenced in their building of their estates in europe and england prior to that so he's an interesting character who was also a member of the Society of the Cincinnati that I mentioned before. And beyond that, he, he uh, designed all the medals, commemorative coins and swords and certificates for the society. So his influence goes beyond just the streets of Washington, D.C. and all of the, the mysteries there, which I suppose a lot of people, you know, obsess about the star in the streets of Washington, D.C. Now, really, the star is right on the what's known as the White House Meridian that Thomas Jefferson had also a hand in planning this array of monuments on the same longitude as as the White House. So um, that star, I believe, the, the star is also a reference to Arcadia. 
oh, really? one of the symbols of Arcadia, because if we go back into Greek mythology, the mythological character, character Arcus is the namesake of Arcadia. Now, in Greek mythology, Arcus and his mother were cast into the sky as Ursa Major for his mother, Callisto, okay. and Arcus was Ur Ursa Minor. And the tale of Ursa Minor includes the Pole Star. So, or the Stella Maris, other people refer to it as the Star of Mary. So th this introduces kind of this geographic concept into what Arcadia could mean secretly to other people, that they had ways to lay out and define their domain and map it that wasn't understood by the common man at that time, that it was kind of a cloistered secret that, that, where, where the king could understand how big his country was <laughs> or where cities were located in relation to each other mm -hmm. and things like that. So that part of, the, uh, of uh, Washington, D.C. then even has a really interesting link to the lost colony of Roanoke, the Roanoke colony. Roanoke, that's what, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Right, because... As we know, that was situated on an island not far from the Outer Banks in North Carolina. But after a while, a map known as the Virginia Pars map that was likely created by Thomas Harriot, who was an associate of Dr. John Dees, he actually was at the colony for about a year. And he was likely who actually created this map that about 80 miles to the west of the Lost Colony, there was a, a star-shaped fort drawn onto the map that was then blotted out really they found this via x-raying the map and studying it with modern technology mm -hmm. and so this star-shaped fort was situated on what is known as as the sacred longitude the 77th degree west of longitude from greenwich that is said to have been valued by Dr. D as a longitude where the equinoxes could be ac accurately measured better than at other longitudes. Hmm. So that's interesting that the original, they may have intended to originally put the colony where the fort was drawn on the map on the quote sacred longitude that even indeed here recently archaeologists uh, from Williamsburg even have identified a site there that's the correct age that may mean some of the lost colonists did actually move to that area Wow, where the quote sacred longitude is located so now let's cut to after the American Revolution where Thomas sure. Jefferson is deciding where the nation's capital will be so the White House Meridian matches the sacred longitude even to the point that it's close to where the star-shaped fort is located on the Virginia Pars map that had been created as part of the Lost Colony. So we may even see this value. We know from what I've described before, Thomas Jefferson's fetish for prime meridians mm -hmm. and geography and hiding things, kind of like you can hide things using an axis, even like a pirate's map. It's at an angle from here, a certain distance, and that's where you should go look. And there may be clues that let you know those kind of things. So it's really interesting that the whole city is situated on what may be considered the sacred longitude 
or sacred wow. meridian that was said to be valued by John D who designated it as such. And even Jamestown is very close to that. If it would have been just a little further to the West, it would have been included on the 77th wow. degree of longitude. So later president Jefferson was also the one who had the capital moved from Williamsburg to Richmond, Virginia. And that's included on the same degree of longitude as Washington, really? D.C. Wow. So there, there's two instances of Jefferson kind of having this esoteric mm -hmm. knowledge and may have having sources or, or through his education at William and Mary that goes back to the earlier Elizabethan days and his relatives that he had, including Thomas Randolph, mm -hmm. Philip Sidney, and the, the Thomas Randolph, the poet as well. Wow. Wow. That's a, um, it's fascinating how that all ties together. Go ahead, John. Oh, I was going to say, um, we we have something from a Facebook user uh, about Verrazano calling North Carolina Arcadia, um, which I was unaware of. We we know that Verrazano was in the New World, um, and he writes about it in a, in a written record of the voyage of fifteen twenty four. Can can you talk to us a little bit about Verrazano? That's Wayne, that's Wayne Murphy brought that up. Oh, sure. oh Wayne sure, Murphy. No, yeah, yeah. no, that that is included <laughs> in you you know. Verrazano's map isn't the most accurate thing in the world <laughs> compared to modern standards, right? So uh, one of the more popular schools of thought is that what he designated Arcadia did begin in North Carolina, just about where the Lost Colony was later located as well. And this went up and included the eastern part of Virginia and the whole eastern seaboard up to Nova Scotia and beyond in the part that he designated like La Arcadia. So that's the original source of even later it becoming known as French Acadia because Acadia is kind of a French slang that means Arcadia as well. Hmm. So Verrazano was at least responsible for naming that. And it's also interesting his trip there to the Newport Harbor and, and being there and not noting a tower was there is one of the reasons I believe it was built later. Yeah. And his influence on all of this was central to a lot of what happened later in French history and the back and forth with England and Nova Scotia and uh, parts of Maine as well. Hmm. Was there any documentation of him being in Nova Scotia? No, not to my knowledge, okay. but you can see there on the map, even that he traveled close. close enough to have possibly stop there and not okay. been part of the ship's logs yep. or, or some occurrence like that. I mean, back, that's one of the frustrating things about looking into a lot of this is the record keeping back in the Renaissance and, and medieval times and later isn't as always detailed. Things were lost. Sometimes Correct. things may have been intentionally hidden. Yeah, like exactly. Correct. Queen Elizabeth hid away Sir Francis Drake's logs from his circumnavigation wow issues like that you know that, that they could be hidden somewhere still today mm -hmm. and that could speak to kind of one of the quote treasures we're looking for mm -hmm. so in That's, this series of yeah. american stories like the brute vault the beale treasure and the story at avenel house i've identified the declaration of independence always comes up mm -hmm. and so that's an american treasure you know in an allegorical way that's something you learn about when you look into those things. So it's entirely possible a lot of these older stories do involve hidden documents, information that's important that is 
again, back to the Rosicrucian philosophy of a hidden tomb with an important person, a treasure, and important information. And you're also talking about, you know, Masonic influences with the Founding Fathers sitting there. And, you Absolutely, know, the, the, yeah. the Masonic Constitution of 1723, which which strikingly resembles our own Constitution with, with a clause of separation of church and state. So there would be no Vatican influence as much as religious freedom. I think that that statement in the Constitution was twofold. Sure, they want yeah. to make sure that this Masonic colony, so to speak, would, would, would not have any church influence officially. Sure. And that and would that makes also sense. speak to the reasons like whatever was left in a kind of national treasure way, like in the movies, would be important to the American ideal. An American treasure that would separate us from the old country and have our own mythology and our own legends and and values that are exposed through these things. Just like there was a royal value of Philip Sidney's book, so they used that in a symbolic way Correct. several different times to pre present that. So in, in America, they planned it to use what America is and what our values are to be part of what you learned. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about what you said, you know, when you look at, and I've done this, when you look at um, Rome, the Vatican City, and you look at Washington D.C., you know, the capital is very reminiscent of St. Peter's, um, Obelisk, Seven Cities, uh, Seven Hills in Rome, Seven Hills in D.C., the Masonic layout. It's almost in Library of Congress, and you had the Vatican Archives. It's very similar. And, and structure to to Vatican City, but it's Masonic or has a Masonic basis. Right. So to me, that's fascinating. Right, and the capital to me also resembles St. Paul's in London. That's interesting as well for yeah. another inspiration of maybe what they were referring to. Mm -hmm. But you're you're totally correct. It's kind of a tradition that you know some of these real treasures have these overlays of information that leads you to assumptions, just like what you were talking about. That, that that there's design similarities and everything lead to your version of that kind of quest, you know, Holy Grail, an American Holy Grail, mm -hmm. as opposed to the the French version of it or the, the Vatican version of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or the Knights Templar version, even lots of other uh, examples of that, like. Every country's proud of their own heritage. There's mysteries like this in Scotland, you know, in Wales, in Ireland, the cyclic cross of Vendée in France. I could go on with a couple of different, you know, places that are important and have been pointed out where where a kind of a legend leads people to be curious about it, and often a treasure is part of that. Excellent. You know, uh, we're about, uh, we got about, uh, I, I like to try to keep these to about two hours, and we're about an hour and 36 minutes in so far, and I know that, uh, we, you know, we could go on talking about uh, the East Coast and uh, the, the relationship between what we think Oak Island and and as, um, let's see, who was it? Susan brought up here, Nova Scotia was almost the 13 colony. We kind of talked about that a little bit, um, but with the time remaining, I want to go a little bit west. Okay. And I know we can we can keep going with this, and maybe we should. But I tell you, I you, you had brought up something out west where you're at, uh, 
and, and it really fascinates me. And, and sorry for the diversion, folks, but there's so much information that, that Court has amassed in his research of things that I find so terribly interesting. <laughs> Tom said, go west, young man. <laughs> um, That's what, what America that, did. <laughs> exactly. We all went west, right? So you you had brought up that we got some symbols that you've shared with us, and I'll, and I'll show those, those on the screen here in a minute. Um, but the symbols went near Mount Shasta. Now, you, you have some really neat uh, videos that you've done talking about Mount Shasta and stuff and writings. Tell us a little bit about these symbols and Mount Shasta. How does that, what's, what's, what, tell us about, about that. Sure. Well, in my studies of Mount Shasta, I became interested in that too, that because of all the interesting folklore stories of a, mm -hmm or kind of new age views of the city of Telos being located inside Mount Shasta. Yeah. yeah. The, the legend of JC Brown. It's another vault legend that's from the 1930s. That's similar to Oak Island or the Beale treasure. Mm -hmm. But as part of that, I discovered that there were, was this panel of strange glyphs that didn't appear to be native American that many people were relating to stories of Lemurians living inside Mount Shasta. So in studying that, I found a lot of other information, including the picture you're showing now mm -hmm. that was included in an archaeological report for California, I think back in the 1940s, that related that these were probably from settlers. They speculate about a secret society or some organization being involved. And as I looked at the overall map in the places in the West where these are located, there was a huge correlation, not with all of them, but with many of them in the places that John Fremont had been the famous explorer mm -hmm. in, in California and, and the West overall, that um, these seemed to pop up in places where he had been. Huh. And this just kind of led me to speculate via some of the things I learned that these were kind of a coded way where he would mark where resources were that could be exploited later. Mineral deposits, water, um, timber, and things like that, because the uh -huh. whole history of the early West does involve a group of explorers, in, including Edward Beale, who I feel is involved with the Beale treasure, Kit Carson, John Fremont, and others, where that some of the stories that they're associated with are places where these symbols are present. Right. Now, I know other people, I forget the gentleman's name who wrote the book about Jesse James you had on recently. Oh, uh, um, 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 Warren Gettler. Yeah, I'm not saying they're wrong. They could also have been used later for things like that or similar symbols for their own purposes, which mm -hmm. the, the Knights of the Golden Circle does have connections to using octagonal templates to hide things just like i suggest the powder magazine is and the newport tower is right. too that they knew of this concept and even poplar forest of thomas jefferson may mm -hmm. be used in the beale treasure story for a similar reason so i'm not saying that they're wrong but i think also in addition to that this could have just been a secret way to denote resources that were being identified as they were exploring because why, why else would they explore? That's part of the reason for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
that they would mark this and these symbols in a way would tell what was there or what was nearby or if it it was a little distance away, maybe even how far, what direction it was in. Right. So through my studies of Mount Shasta, it was interesting. I discovered another character named Joaquin Miller, who was an early author of California. He's very popular in literature of California and known for being an early California resident and even of Mount Shasta, he lived near where these symbols were present. So as time went on, he wrote this book called My Life Amongst the Modocs, which became actually more popular in England than the United States. So he actually toured Europe promoting his book and selling his book. And when he came back, He lived in Washington, D.C. and built a cabin right on the White House Meridian, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. It is. Eventually, he moves back to Oakland, and the property he bought was actually the property from which John Fremont first observed the Golden Gate in the San Francisco Mm -hmm. Bay Area in Oakland. And lo and behold, his property included two panels of these glyphs. And he it was interesting, too. I think he knew what the White House Meridian was because he actually built a pyramid on his property that's exactly due south of the peak of Mount Shasta. Really? So here he'd even written a book in literature and poetry about wow. Mount Shasta and then later um, built this pyramid. And another interesting aside story is there is that uh, Joaquin was part of the Bohemian Club of the Bay Area. And uh, in his will, he insisted that his Bohemian Club brothers burn him on a funeral pyre, which he had already built out of stone on his property. So his wife put the kibosh on that. (laughs) (laughs) And as the story goes, his Masonic and Bohemian Club brothers dug him up and actually burned him. They actually did do it. Yeah, on the the funeral pyre. So kind of macabre story there, but also has a, a, a tenuous tie into these strange petroglyphs of the West. Now, did you find these on rocks or did you find them on, tr- I mean, were they on trees or I mean, where, what were they? They're on where rocks. You- okay. All the ones that I'm speaking of are inscribed on stones. Wow. That, that, <laughs> that are drawing and use that same series of symbols. And really what's kind of interesting is later I learned that Hmong tribesmen from Vietnam claim they can interpret these symbols. Really? Yes, like after Vietnam, a lot of Hmong people came to California and other places, and they would see these, and even to the point where they interpreted a few of them to say that treasure was nearby. Interesting. And so that was curious to me. There's a video on YouTube that shows you that theory and documents how that came about with Mm -hmm. the the Hmong person that interpreted them, but it's possible that also these symbols have a Catholic origin to them, that the church had used a similar system before, and we know in that part of Vietnam there were Jesuit missionaries and other missionaries even up until the time of the Vietnam War where they may have learned uh, of this, even going all the way back to the story of Prester John who traveled somewhere to the east, and there's all kinds of legends and myths about him as well. So it's really kind of interesting that, that they may have, some Hmong people may have been schooled in how to interpret these via 
in wow. association with the church. So that's was, interesting too. In, in the 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 going back to the KGC again, that they could have definitely possibly used the same thing. In fact, I recently found out that uh, during the Civil War, that Chico, where I lived, was one of the biggest concentrations of KGC in California at that time. Really. And I'm oh, just wow. starting to learn wow. more about that now because even the founder of the town, John Bidwell, was a union side. He was a congressman during the Civil War. Right. Yes. They brought him up. His name was brought up during that right. evening. And prior to that, this is funny because this is a, even an episode of the old TV show, Death Valley Days. That's called The Woman with the Blue Silk Umbrella. That John Bidwell was one of the people who brought the charter for statehood back to California on a ship. Really? And that there were Confederate agents on the ship trying to steal the charter. So they hid it in one of the young ladies' blue silk umbrella so they wouldn't be able to find it. Wow. But the scan information I've got so far is that uh, John Bidwell opposed the South, obviously, because he, he was part of the, the Union congress during the civil war that he did a lot of secret things and had his own organization that opposed them during that time so i'm still working on that one wow and this is also interesting too i'll squeeze this in here too that one of the first things i looked into was the strange street plan of chico which is a diamond shaped eight by eight block plan really uh -huh. And as I studied more, there's been interesting architecture added to this over the years. And John Bidwell's wife, Annie Bidwell, her full real name is Annie Ellicott Kennedy. She was actually related to Andrew Ellicott, one of the planners of Washington, D.C. Hmm. So over the time I lived here, before I became interested in all this, periodically I would hear things about the strange street plan of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. There's kind of an old Bank of America building here built in the 1920s that is kind of a Roslyn Chapel or Solomon's Temple. It has all this esoteric stonework on it, like a phoenix rising from a grail cup. Right. Uh, illustrations of Tubal Cain and, and uh, Palace Athena that has Masonic overtones. Mm. So all this stuff is lined up. So... I think John Bidwell designed the whole town like a miniature of Washington, D.C. Interesting. Because the original plan of Washington, D.C. was a 10-mile square diamond. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so the original plan of Chico is this 8 by 8 block square that's kind of like a chessboard. Yeah. Huh. And then the city plaza we have aligns with the Bidwell mansion. It actually points to the Bidwell mansion. And that's in the Queen Square of the plan of the town. And even at the city plaza today, there's chess boards, you know, tables they have there with chess boards mm -hmm. inlaid on them with right. the iconic pillars of Boaz and Yakin to enter the area where the chess board is. Mm -hmm. The Bank of America is on the alignment between the city plaza and Bidwell Mansion. So all of this was an intentional nod to the plan of Washington, D.C., because yep, his wife, be. Annie, was from there. She, yep. she was, he met her when he was a congressman. So I think he did that for her. And it's interesting, yep. some of the streets, like uh, 
cherry, hazel, ivy, um, chestnut, and orange spell Chico. Oh, really? And they're all in a row. <laughs> Interesting. And so there's all these little things about the plan of Chico, how the, the city hall aligns with the city plaza, kind of like a miniature of the alignments in Washington, D.C. Wow. So that's kind of cool. It uh, is very like on the East yeah. Coast and the West Coast lining up. Yeah. Right. What's what's interesting, Cord, is you said there's chessboards and all. I, I recently went to the George Washington Masonic Temple in uh, Arlington, uh, Virginia, and they have a room that's checkerboarded just like that. And I asked about it, and they said, well, it really represents man's capacity for both good and evil. And in the Masonic tradition, it's the capacity that you can do good, you can do evil. But for the Masonic tradition, it's more of the freedom to do you know, and make those choices, which is exactly what the Constitution, you know, basically entombs is our freedoms. Right. It's like to, a yin, yin, yin and correct. yang kind of concept. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not surprised that that's one of the symbols within right. that uh, schematic. Incidentally, too, that, you know, chess obviously was said to be the favorite game of the Knights Templar or during the Crusader era. It became very popular. Really? And there's that, that link to it as well because it is. Kind of a medieval combat game you're playing. There. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Hey, um, Court, you had said something about uh, John Fremont's relation to a Beal. I have Edward. Is that accurate? Right. He he's not related to him, but they knew each other. Uh, there's well. a relation there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That um, it's interesting because uh, today here in Chico, just 18 miles north of town in Vina, California, is the monastery of New Clairvaux. And they've actually rebuilt a uh, 13th century chapter house that was brought stone by stone from Spain. There, wow. a Cistercian chapter house. So that's in Vina, California, which was the ranch one time of Peter Lassen, a famous pioneer of California, mm -hmm. who was also friends with John Fremont and Senator Benton. So I just thought I'd throw that in there real quick. But... <laughs> Edward Beale is my main um, suspect in the Beale treasure story. And he was even traveled to the parts of Colorado where the treasure was supposedly discovered. But he did all kind of th this search for resources and things like that. He shared with his friend John Fremont and John Fremont's father-in-law, Senator, Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri. So... Uh, that kind of speaks to the way things, the way politics works today, too, <laughs> mm -hmm. where they, they're encountering all this wilderness with these resources in it, and they're all benefiting from it themselves and their family and associates. So that, that a, a longtime friendship between John Fremont and uh, Edward F. Beale is very interesting because Beale was a character very much like John Fremont. He explored the West a lot. He created the Beale Wagon Road that later became Route 66. Oh. Yeah, he blazed oh, I didn't know that. A, a, a train grade, a railroad grade right through the part of Colorado where the Beale treasure was supposed to have been found. And his daughter later ended up owning the Cripple Creek mine right in that area, which is one of the richest gold mines in Colorado history. And, uh, her McLean family became so wealthy that she actually owned the Hope Diamond. And she was the one who donated it to the Smithsonian Institute. Wow. So she was the last actual owner of the Hope Diamond. So there's that and a lot more. 
that, that connect even Beale, Edward F. Beale, who is related to the Thomas Beale from the Bruton Vault story in Williamsburg. That's where his family originated. Mm-hmm. So he has a long string of these kind of mysteries in his family tradition as well, that, that where he would have been one of these later people during the mid uh, to late 1800s that would have been privy to all of these kind of stories. Sure. And he may have even been involved in leaving some of the strange symbols along the way. So he may have been even privy to what those really meant. Hmm. He was an interesting character. He was on the Union side during the Civil War, at which time he became uh, the Surveyor General of California. And he and his family developed uh, Bakersfield and the Beale Clock Tower and the Beale Library is there. And he also owned this huge, like 40,000 acre ranch known as the Tahoe Ranch that's still there today, along with other investments in San Francisco and places like that. So it's really interesting how this spins around back to the Bruton Vault and Beale mm-hmm. treasure because Edward oh, F. Beale's son, Truxton Beale, who was born in San Francisco, uh, died in like 1934. And he chose to have himself entombed in the Bruton Parish churchyard, where I believe the hidden tomb of Nathaniel Bacon is. Mm. So when you go to the Bruton Parish church to look around today, you'll also see the tomb of Truxton Beale, where his ancestor, Thomas Beale, the Knight of Malta, used to worship at the church, that his family has a long history associated with that era in colonial Virginia but also I think we're privy to the truth of the story of Nathaniel Bacon that I told earlier. Mm-hmm. So that shows you how a lot of these things interconnect. I believe yeah. they knew about the Bruton vault, the Beale treasure, and probably were privy to other stories, similar and, and, stories as well. And there's From a even the Alexander family who I mentioned were part of that of Virginia mm-hmm. history as well. And then there's a Knights of Malta connection between also with Jefferson. Is there not? Well, some people suspect that he was a Knight of Malta. And you and I have gone back and that, forth on that. That's possible. But during his time in France, nobody really knows if he was initiated into one of the French lodges there. But during that era of French history, to become a Knight of Malta, you had to be a, Ma- a Freemason, too. There's no so the only real source of him being that is a, a poster that was printed in the 19th century that shows him being a Knight of Malta. Mm, other than that there's no records the the lodge in charlottesville had a fire and all the records from his era are missing and and some of the things about his life suggest that he may not have been a freemason Mm -hmm. because he was against the the formation of the society of the cincinnati and kind of spoke about how much control groups like that could have or be misinterpreted as having right right when america gained their independence and we're trying to form this new country where everybody had equal rights or more equal rights than they had before anyway hmm. so that could go either way maybe someday some records will pop up to prove <laughs> that one way or the other sure but he certainly in his time in france he associated with people like Louis Alexander Rochefoucauld, the, mm-hmm. the son of the Duke d'Anville who died in Nova Scotia, who printed the Declaration of Independence in French for the first time. 
and there's our declaration popping up again, again. in a story that's Same related theme. to what we're all talking about. And he attended literary salons with the Marquis de Lafayette and, and kind of ran in this crowd of uh, noble people in France that also wanted a republic, you know, kind of on their terms. And then the revolution came along, and unfortunately a lot of them were done away with as part of the French Revolution, and they didn't get to realize this constitutional monarchy like England had in France mm-hmm. is what they were, you know, angling for at that time. So even Louis Alexandre Rochefoucauld was killed in the Reign of Terror. But what's interesting about that is his son, Francois, then moved to the United States in exile for about a three-year time where he lived in Philadelphia and he became a member of the American Philosophical Society, which is basically a Freemasonic-associated group Mm -hmm. at that time. And he had a correspondence with Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin. So he was well in the loop of founding fathers. And that's another possible connection between the Oak Island story and American history right there. There Yeah, we had a a question jumped in here. Um, uh, It says, I don't want to get off track, uh, but Christopher Columbus landed in and now what's called the province... Providence, uh, Providence town in uh, Massachusetts in October, then resailed off a month later only to land again across the bay, which he didn't uh, know, I guess, uh, what is now known as Plymouth, you know, Massachusetts. Um, was there a fact, was there any fact that he was Templar? Well, I'll address the Templar question first. All right. Uh, no, I don't think he was. Because if you look at even if he had red crosses on his sails, Columbus was from the Republic of Genoa, Mm -hmm. who has the same flag as England with the red cross on it. So if he had red crosses on his sails, that's what he was saying, because we know later he even paid 10 percent of all his colonial earnings to the Republic of Genoa. Mm -hmm. So I've never heard any source or any story having Columbus having gone to where Provincetown, Massachusetts is. So I can't really address that one. I, I, I don't have any basis of reference for that story at all. All right. Well, okay. So one, we're getting ready to wrap it up here. And I wanted to ask you just briefly too, what are you working on now? What's your, what's your source of uh, uh, keeping your interest at the moment? Well, I'm trying to find the copy of the book I'm working on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be something that we need to uh, find out about because this will be coming down the pike here pretty soon. I would I would imagine. Oh well, I can't find it right now. Wouldn't you know? But yeah, I have a proof <laughs> copy of it. I've been using to edit it, but it's called Timeless Arcadia: Treasure okay. Myths and Legends. Here it is. Diane's helping me. I get a real good book plug here. All right. So this is the proof copy I use to to edit it. And uh, that's going to be coming out soon. I'm really almost done. I'm thinking about adding one more chapter. So that's going to be out here within a week or two, mm. even though I've been saying that for the last two months. What was the name <laughs> of it again? <laughs> what was the name of it again? Timeless Arcadia, Treasure Myths and Legends Revealed. Oh, my goodness. So this, this stands book. independently of my other Arcadia book about Oak Island and is a continuation of that that shows in more detail and some new examples that I found since I did the other book that kind of 
support the thesis of the other book in all of this series of references to Arcadia that I've seen in these English nobles making plot elements from Philip Sidney's book, A Reality, which we didn't have time to get into maybe next time maybe next time you know you know we're gonna have to have you back on the show because there's you have so much information oh, and i know we, we didn't even get to it all i mean there's there's so many uh, notes here and i'm like oh my goodness I, it's, it's not even close wow no we didn't and, and i tell you honestly uh you know as I, I mentioned this before court you you have such you have amassed so much information and how you've realized and gone through and tied all That's these amazing. things together even for us tonight uh, shown us the relationships between so many different things. Uh, it's it just, it's just, it kind of blows my mind. And and how you were able to put all this together is just, it's it's fascinating. But again, folks, you got to. I mean, how many books do you have now, Court? How many? How many have you uh, written? Now? Ten. About wow. ten books. Ten. Yeah, I've written since about. When did I start? About two thousand and nine. Wow. And, and wow. Um, I deleted the first two because I need to re-edit them. I would got pulled down the wrong rabbit hole like everybody else you have to go down those wrong turns because that's how you start to realize and get a yep. feel for yes. what what is yep. meaningful and real yep so exactly. I, I have gone through some things to try to get to the point i'm at now that tell me that i'm on the right track but and what's frustrating is it really doesn't solve oak island you know that, that's <laughs> mystery but it, it adds a new light onto who possibly could have been involved and what their motives were and, and what their values wow. were. Right. And I, and I think that's something that we're all coming to understand with Oak Island. I, I know many people have talked about it. I've mentioned it. John's mentioned it. That, that the fact that, um, and Jack Campbell, of course, has mentioned it too, the fact that there are possibly so many different uh, people that have, we know there's been so many different people there. Um, and we know that if there's things left behind there, it could very well have been from, multiple sources um you know and and that's just why why oak island was this place as john and i were talking about why oak island could have been this place that was like a a stopping point or a a, a point where they did shipbuilding or ship repairs or or a stopover point it, just, it was naturally on that course it seemed like uh when you're coming across uh, the ocean it just seemed like that was a natural stopping point before you made your way down the east coast or elsewhere um but it, it, it it's it why but but so many different people may have come down through there uh sure. and, and left something behind there's some and kind of history of different behind. countries right different portuguese spanish yep. Yep. english french yep. you name yep. it yep. basque fishermen <laughs> <laughs> it works exactly everybody's got a piece of the action there Yep. Any any last points, John, before we wrap it up? No, no, it's fantastic. We really appreciate your time tonight, Court. It, it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. no problem. I'm here always here for you guys if you want to do this again. Oh, we'd love to. Another time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We you, you, like I said, we, we have cover. to have you come back. And and especially after that book, when you get that, what'd you say next week or when it was? <laughs> well, hopefully it'll be finished next week and I'll and I'll have it out within a couple of weeks for sale and I'll let you all know. Please do. Please let us know, and I'll, I'll make exactly sure that we get a link up there for that because I know a lot of people will be. I'm interested already Absolutely. just from listening to the title of there. You put treasure in a title, and I'm just like, what? what was that? <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> I'm hooking you in you. just like the mystery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
Well, thank you so much, Cortlandall, for coming in and sharing a couple of hours with us here tonight and, and sharing your re some of your some of your research uh, with us. We certainly appreciate that very much. And uh, John Edwards, thank you for being here with me also, yep. because I know you and Court talk a lot. You guys share this kind of stuff going back and forth. And you're a great researcher in your own right. So, and I appreciate your expertise on the show here tonight, sure. folks. This has been a great couple of hours. I know I've really enjoyed it. And this, don't forget, this is going to stay out on YouTube. It's going to stay on our Facebook group. It's going to be out on Twitch TV. Uh, stay in there so you can always catch up with it later because I'm going to have to review it more times, I think, myself to kind of make sure I didn't. I know I probably missed some stuff. Uh, thank you so much to Linda and Jan uh, for what you guys do out there in the chat and keeping things rolling and getting all the schedules and everything done. Appreciate you very much. And Jack Campbell, thanks for stepping aside tonight and uh, and allowing uh, uh, John to come on and help us out with this. I appreciate that again very much for you too. Folks, uh, don't forget. Oh, I also, I wanted to mention real quick too that I have now been putting these out onto the podcast platforms. Uh, it, we're just going to, uh, right now, I think we're up on uh, Podbean and um, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Uh, in Amazon, which is the um, uh, Audible, uh, they're all going to be there, and I will have this one posted up there as well. It's audio only, so you can go back and download it, listen to it at your leisure. It will be out there. I'll put it up there tonight. Uh, and it, again, if you're out there on YouTube, click that subscribe button for us. And we're also on Patreon if you want to help support the show. But again, thank you, Court Lindahl, for being here today. Uh, we've really, really enjoyed this. And I want to say thank you for all those who came by and were listening. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. Good night, everybody. Good night, all. Good night.